This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time for 20 Minutes Without Trump, special feature of this program aimed to combat Trump fatigue. And so we turn to Pico Iyer to talk about Japan. He's the author of eight works of nonfiction and two novels. He started writing for Time in 1982. Today, he's also a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, Harper's, and the LA Times. We've talked here about his books on the Dalai Lama and on Graham Greene. I think my favorite segment we did was about Peter Matheson going in search of the snow leopard in the Himalayas. Now he has a new book out. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Japan. Pico Iyer, welcome back. I'm always so delighted to talk to you, John. Thank you. Well, you have an amazing way of organizing your year. Tell us about that. Well, as much as possible for the last 32 years, I've spent at least seven months of the year in Japan, um, around Kyoto and Nara, the two ancient capitals. I've spent all those 32 years um, there on a tourist visa, even though I have a Japanese wife and I could have a more official kind of visa. And then the other five months of the year, I travel around and sometimes come back here to California where my mother lives. And in Japan, you live with your Japanese wife in what you call an anonymous suburb where no foreigners are seen. Uh, Tell us about that place. (laughs) Well, it couldn't be more boring um, on the surface. So if you were to visit us tomorrow, you would see a completely modern, mock Californian suburb. Our apartment is entirely Western, no tatami mats, no exquisite shoji screens. And the whole neighborhood was built in the 1970s more or less to look like Southern California. So all the buildings are Western style. All the streets are completely straight. Um, No temple, no shrine in the whole neighborhood. And even the two main drags are called Park Dory and School Dory, using those English names as if to persuade my mostly elderly retired neighbors they've arrived in a Japanese version of California. <laughs> but despite all those really Van Nuys-looking surfaces, it's deeply Japanese. And I love the way that Japan remains so much itself, even though it takes in features of everywhere else in the world. Well, a lot of us think Japan has been coming less Japanese and more and more American Ever since the end of World War II, your own neighborhood there, you write in your book, has a McDonald's, a Kentucky Fried Chicken, a Mr. Donut, and a Starbucks, just like my neighborhood in West L.A. (laughs) That's true, and I think a lot of my Japanese neighbors share that worry. But if you go into the McDonald's, um, you'll find them serving moon-viewing burgers last (laughs) month in honor of the East Asian Festival at the Harvest Moon. If you go into the Starbucks you'll be finding cherry blossom frappuccinos. And if you go to the baseball stadium there, you'll find that uh, games at a level after 12 innings end in a tie. So Japan has taken the all-American pastime and made it entirely uh, Japanese. And I think even it's taken Colonel Sanders and turned him into a kind of samurai. He's wearing a kimono outside his outlet in my neighborhood. Well, let's talk about baseball in Japan. We know... 
a number of important American players who started in Japan. Uh, we're record, we record our show in Los Angeles. One of the best Dodger pitchers is Kenta Maeda, who I read played for the Hiroshima Carp at Mazda Stadium. And there's also the former Dodger pitcher, Yu Darvish, now with the Chicago Cubs. He played for the Hokkaido Fighters. Tell us about baseball in Japan. It seems uh, like another part of the Americanization of what, what used to be a traditional culture. And I think the operative word there is seems. Um, because, but you're absolutely right. When I first moved to Japan in the late 80s, the striking thing was all the washed-up elderly major league players here would go over there when they were 38 or 39 and lead the league in home runs. And I and most people never expected that soon it, the, it would be going in the other direction, starting with Hideo Nomo coming um, here uh, for the Dodgers in the mid-90s. But uh, when you go to the ballpark in Japan, you'll find that the team that leads the league in home runs also leads the league in sacrifice bunts, sacrifice hmm. bunts being a very important part of the Japanese game. And you will hear that one of the first times an American manager went to Japan to lead a team, which was Bobby Valentine in 1995, he took this really mediocre squad. He led them to this stunning second-place finish, and he was instantly fired. And many of us from abroad were surprised by this. Why was he fired? Well, said the team spokesman, because of his emphasis on winning. <laughs> In Japan, winning is like unsportsmanlike conduct. It's disrupting the harmony of the place. So really, I would say that even baseball in Japan becomes something very un-American, where winning is not necessarily the main object. And what's it like to go to a game there? It's wonderful. I would say all the exciting action is in the stands more than on the field. As you probably know, Japanese players are perfection. They're very good at executing everything perfectly, but the game itself is a bit dull because it's cautious and the teams are playing not to lose. But in the stands, you will see that there are 30 cheerleaders for each team. <laughs> there are trumpets everywhere. The entire crowd stands up and executes a special dance and song for every player who comes up to the plate, for as long as he's at the plate, uh, they'll be playing La Cucaracha or the Mickey Mouse song or something very zany. And it's a wonderful counterpart to the rest of Japan, which is fairly shy and reserved and quiet, as you know. Get to the ballpark, and um, Japan lets its, <laughs> its id out with a vengeance. Um, so I always recommend people, even if they have no interest in baseball, to go to a game while they're in Japan. My sister spent several weeks in Japan. She's a dancer and a choreographer, and uh, she was amazed by the vending machines. Tell us about the vending machines. The vending machines are everywhere. There are more per capita in Japan than anywhere else on Earth. So if you're walking down a deserted country lane or if you go to a remote temple on top of a mountain, you will find stands of vending machines uh, selling sometimes whiskey and condoms and X-rated paraphernalia, as well as hot and cold tea, coffee, corn soup, you name it. And this often strikes us as surprising, but when you go to Japan in midsummer, I'm not sure if that's when your sister was there, it is about 120 degrees with 150% humidity. And if you're going for a nice hike, you're so glad that somebody has had the sense to put um, a vending machine full of cool drinks there. And of course, the thing about Japanese vending machines is they're never out of the product you want. Everything you want is always right there, and, and nobody vandalizes them. Uh, so they can be entrusted in, in the remotest parts, and nobody will mess with them. 
And the one part of Japanese culture that Americans are familiar with is anime, big force in American popular culture. What is it in Japan? Well, I think anime is the perfect expression of an animist culture. And hmm. when we think of Japan, as you and I have been saying, we think about its modern Western post-war services. But really, the longer I've been in Japan, the more I feel that it's um, this deeply traditional animist society. So if you were to meet my wife, who wears a black leather jacket and roars around on a motorbike and sells punk clothes, you might be surprised that um, she, she believes that every blade of grass, every tree, every pencil has a soul. And I think all Japanese believe that they're living in this charged network saturated with spirits in everything animate and inanimate. So anime, which to us is, is so striking, is to them a kind of realism. It's representing a world in which everything has life. If you see the great movies of Miyazaki, for example, like Spirited Away or The Wind Rises, they've won, he's won a couple of Academy Awards, he shows you, um, you know, drops of dew have a spirit, and that's magical to us. It's realism to the Japanese. One of the most cloying things about Japanese stuff in the United States is the cuteness of all the consumer stuff that we see, the little bears, the little kittens, the little foxes that appear on backpacks and pens and cards. You describe a couple of ads on the train into Kyoto, which have some cute little bears and foxes, and you asked your wife what they were advertising. Tell us about that. <laughs> yes, they couldn't have been cuter, so I thought they were for a playground or kindergarten or something. And yet my wife explained to me that these, these kawaii, as they're called in Japan, teddy bears, uh, were an ad representing um, the threat of child abuse and what number to call if you saw a child being ill-treated. And in some ways it's just a kind of anesthetic to make everyone feel safer. But I agree with you, it's, it's one of the stranger Japanese exports. Well, I opened this by saying we were not going to talk about Trump, but it's time to return to our reality. Are there Trump-like figures in Japan now the way there are in England and, and other places? Is there anything in Japan like Donald Trump? Well, there is the nationalist right-wing group who feel that Japan was ill-treated in the war and that it should reclaim its former glory. They're always very visible and audible. They drive around the towns with... Um, in trucks blasting out stuff through um, loudspeakers. And I think many Japanese would feel that Prime Minister Abe, who wants to rewrite the post-war constitution so that Japan is no longer committed to peace, is pursuing a much more aggressive policy than they would like. He's not in the same league as many of the demagogues we see around the world, but he's certainly not moving in the direction that many Japanese would like. Many people, like my wife and I think most of my neighbors, are so proud of Japan's commitment to um, being a conscientious objector for all eternity and really worried when Prime Minister Abe wants to rewrite things so that uh, the nation has an army again and is committed to aggressive action rather than peaceful. Last question. You call your new book a beginner's guide. Who exactly is the beginner here? The beginner is me, so it's craftily mistitled. It's not aimed at the beginner, but it's written by somebody who for 32 years feels like a beginner in Japan. And maybe the one thing I'll say to end this is I wrote another book on Japan just four months ago 
called Autumn Light, which is an attempt to show how a Japanese neighborhood functions from day to day. And that's a much more kind of emotional, sensitive book about the interior of Japan. So one is very focused, and it tries to show how Japan is not so different at the human level from what you'd find in California. And the other is all over the place, and it, it enjoys in many ways Japan is still so different from us. Pico Iyer, his two books this year are Autumn Light and A Beginner's Guide to Japan. Pico, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. Always a delight to talk to you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.